Chapter Twenty Seven of the Wife of the Secretary of State. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rebecca Case. The Wife of the Secretary of State by Ella Middleton Tybout. Chapter Twenty Seven. Lyndhurst had faithfully discharged his errand. He had seen Lee carried bodily downstairs, mattress and all, by the Redmond servants without rousing from the deep sleep into which he had sunk, and had felt thankful to the early darkness of the winter's night and the seclusion of the octagon house, which combined to prevent the accumulation of the curious crowd usually inseparable from such occasions. To the wondering servants he volunteered no explanation whatever, and devoted his energies to supporting his companion on the wide back seat of the brougham. "'Put the mattress inside the door and go home. Drive carefully,' he directed with a sigh of relief at the absence of an inconvenient policeman of an inquiring turn of mind. Lee slept heavily. Indeed, he seemed to be in a stupor from which he could not be awakened. The Englishman anxiously touched his pulse, and thanked heaven his own responsibility would soon cease. He saw Lee carried up the broad stairway of the Redmond house, followed by the doctor and a white-capped nurse, who waited to receive them, and found himself entering into a halting explanation to Mr. Redmond of how he happened to be near the octagon house, was attracted by the muttering of Lee in his delirium, and at once investigated, being interested in ferreting out sounds attributed to the supernatural, and curious regarding the legends of the old house. He grew quite fluent toward the latter part of his story, and brought himself to an abrupt pause, conscious that the secretary was listening with a puzzled air and an expression of surprised incredulity. Lindhurst suddenly remembered he had forgotten dinner, and that the evening was well advanced, and, remarking that he would look in later to hear the report of the doctor, beat a hasty retreat. It was a fact worthy of comment that when he returned to his rooms he avoided passing the British legation. He believed the lion and the unicorn would look reproachfully down upon him, and felt he deserved their contempt. "'So much for prying into your neighbor's back doors,' he remarked grimly to a friendly lamp-post, as he stopped to light his cigar. Meanwhile, Mrs. Redmond waited the verdict of the doctor. The secretary, after a moment's hesitation, had followed the patient upstairs, so she sat alone in the brightly lighted hallway, reviewing the events of the day. Events seemed to be crowding upon one another with bewildering swiftness of late, and there was a decided uncertainty as to what the next revolution of the wheel of fate might bring forth. Estelle caught her breath as she reflected upon the helplessness of humanity when their garments catch upon its cogs, and she knew that with the flowing draperies of woman escape is particularly difficult. Indeed, it sometimes seemed as though the civilized world was determined to shield and protect its masculine element, even in the fashion of their raiment. She sat in the large carved chair from which she had invited Count Waldmere to be her guest on New Year's night. Was it only yesterday? It seemed to her ages had come and gone since then. 
the very griffins carved upon its arms suggested the handsome face of the Russian, and the surrounding air was filled with echoes of his voice. A week, she said aloud, only a week, seven days, but it's got to be done somehow. There was a movement in the hall upstairs. A servant was summoned and hastily dispatched to the nearest drug store, and quiet was again restored. Mrs. Redmond put her hands upon the arms of the chair, as though to hide the griffins' heads, and thought of her interview with Lyndhurst. So he knew. What ultimate use would he make of his knowledge? Colonel St. John's daughter believed she realized the implacability of his nature, but Mrs. Redmond involuntarily trusted in the chivalry of his manhood. She heard the doctor, in the upper hall, say something in a low voice and her husband's quiet reply. In another moment they might come downstairs. Could she pull herself together and talk to them naturally? For an instant surrounding objects blurred and the walls leaned towards each other. Then gradually furniture and bric-a-brac separated, and the walls resumed their former upright position. Air. She must have air. Catching up the fur-lined cloak she had flung aside upon her return a few hours previous, she went out on the doorstep and leaned against the stone framework, her cheek pressed against its rough surface. "'I must think,' she said, as the cool wind drove away the faintness and brought a trace of color to her face. "'It takes a lot of thinking. But after a while it will come to me. It's got to be done. I see it quite plainly.' The street lamps shone dimly, and the stars overhead displayed shining points of light against the dark background of the sky. Carriages and pedestrians hurried along, bent on reaching their destination as speedily as possible, and the quiet of the early evening descended upon the city. After a while, some hours later, the avocations of the night would commence, and parts of Washington, at least, would be far from peaceful. Estelle pressed her face closer to the hard stone, and looked from the stars to the street below. "'The debt is mine,' she said slowly. "'Mine, and I must pay the price.' A man and woman approached. She, resplendent as to hat and feathers, dragging her tawdry skirts along the pavement to conceal defective shoes. He— with hands thrust deep in his pockets and hat well down over his eyes to conceal his identity. Just opposite the house she laid her hand, in its torn and dirty white glove, upon his arm and spoke earnestly, the painted face beneath the draggling feathers raised appealingly. With a muttered oath he shook off the hand as though fearing contamination from her touch. "'Drop your whining,' he commanded. "'Don't you know it's all past and over?' She made a low-voiced reply, and he impatiently pulled out his purse. "'There,' he said, rapidly selecting a note. "'I want to see no more of you. "'As a man never to be free from a millstone around his neck? "'Here, take it, and go back to where you belong.' "'Where I belong?' she cried sharply. "'Yes, and who sent me there? Who?' They passed out of hearing, and faded away in the distance." he striding along in front, she following dejectedly a few feet in the rear. Night had begun already. 
Mrs. Redmond shivered as she went back into the radiance and warmth of the hall. She had looked with unwilling eyes into a dangerous abyss of darkness, and felt an irresistible desire for light and safety. At the foot of the stairs her husband stood in earnest consultation with the doctor. A blow on the back of the head, the physician was saying, resulting in concussion. The danger lies in the abnormally high temperature. The case bears investigation, Mr. Redmond. With your permission, I shall report it to the police. Certainly, said the secretary promptly, the sooner the better. I will offer a liberal reward for the capture of the man who dealt the blow. Mr. Lee is my private secretary, and an uncommonly fine young fellow. I have a great personal regard for him and interest in his welfare. The doctor thoughtfully drew on his gloves. The Octagon House, I think you said, he remarked slowly. A very strange case. Pity he is unable to throw any light on it himself. But, of course, that is out of the question for the present. Perhaps he may be able to talk a bit in a day or two, however, and it might be well to delay informing the police for a little. Well, I must be off. The nurse is entirely competent, the best on my list. It's lucky she was at leisure, for he needs skilled attention. I'll look in again later on. Mrs. Redmond need feel no responsibility in the matter. Miss Gray has my instructions, and, as I said, she is very efficient. Good night. John, said Mrs. Redmond, as the door closed, will the police be notified tonight? He replied absently that he hardly thought so, but was not sure. And, she continued, they will search the octagon house. Set someone to watch it, perhaps? Dinner is served, said James, appearing at the door with a long-suffering expression of countenance. It was the third time that night he had made the announcement, and yet no one had responded. The secretary put his arm about his wife. Come, dear, he said gently, you need your dinner, and so do I. We are both tired, I think. In the blue room, the nurse stood beside the bed and gazed at her patient. Up to the present time, she had been too busy for more than a hasty pause of surprise when the light first fell upon his face. Now, however, had come a lull in active operations, and she could collect her thoughts. She had grown accustomed to emergency cases, and responded promptly when summoned, although very tired and sorely in need of a few days' rest, and she experienced a decided thrill of gratification when the doctor, in a few hasty words, expressed his satisfaction that she was at leisure. For you know, Miss Gray, we have a tough job before us for a few days at least. After that it ought to be plain sailing, but together we'll pull him through, I hope. Fine-looking young chap, isn't he? I'll drop in again tonight. Meanwhile, watch the temperature. It ought to fall somewhat shortly, and it must not rise. Mary Gray knew that her profession was apt to bring her in constant contact with the unexpected, but as she looked at the face upon the pillow, she experienced a moment of incredulous astonishment. David Lee, at Mrs. Coulson's, had insensibly attracted her. His frank, hearty manner and laughing blue eyes, as well as the air of good fellowship with the world in general, had appealed to the girl already weary of the struggle for existence, although his exuberant health and spirits had rather overpowered her. 
Mary shaded the light and turned to collect the garments scattered about the room. As she folded the coat, giving a little shake to free it from the dust, something fell from an inside pocket, and she stooped to pick it up. Was it necessary for her to remove everything from his pockets, she wondered, as well as the purse the doctor had laid on the dressing table? She held a long envelope in her hand, oppressed with the sense of something strangely familiar in the surrounding atmosphere. Her patient's condition demanded her undivided attention. Why, then, should she be able to think only of her sister? Why should Christine's laces, ribbons, and various unimportant articles of apparel be uppermost in her mind? Lee stirred uneasily, but she stood absorbed, his coat over her arm, and the hand holding the papers hanging listlessly at her side. Suddenly she raised the envelope, looked at it with startled eyes, and held it to her nose. Yes, it was there, the subtle, penetrating odor which Christine loved, and she considered sickening. The curious mixture of sachet powders the younger girl had learned from an old Frenchwoman, and in possession of which secret she exulted openly, triumphing in the individuality of her perfume. Mary felt in the coat pocket and drew out a handkerchief. It was possible the Frenchwoman had given her recipe to more than one person. The handkerchief, however, was guiltless of scent of any kind, and she returned it regretfully. Why did the envelope seem familiar? She bent over it and laboriously examined the one word, blurred and indistinct. R-O-O. -O. Suddenly she paused. She remembered the night of Mr. Mark's first visit to Christine. The white hyacinths and the package flung impatiently aside, unopened after the first three letters were spelled out, and never again mentioned. The nurse forgot her duty to her patient in her realization of her duty to her sister, and opened the envelope. End of chapter 27